Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But she's our special guest, author and singer-songwriter, Sylvie Simmons. My love, she speaks like silence, without ideals of violence. She doesn't have to say she's faithful, yet she's true like ice, like fire. Oh. Sylvie, why did you uh, choose that particular Bob Dylan couplet? That was the first song, I Love Minus Zero, that I played on a guitar as a little girl before I graduated to the much better ukulele (laughs) as an old girl. (laughs) And what is it? Does it still speak to you? Oh, absolutely. There's occasions when, as you know, Bob Dylan can be very caustic about women. (laughs) And there's other times when he is just so courtly and so really captures a moment. Well, even that song um, seems quite tender and quite nice. And then at the end of the song, she's... She's outside the window in a howling gale, and we wonder what's what's gone wrong with this relationship. Yeah, with even a broken so, wing. who knows? I I thought, yeah, with a broken ring. With a broken right. wing, exactly. <laughs> it's interesting because oh you say courtly, because mm-hmm. that's not a word that I would I would use that word probably when uh, when I was talking about Leonard Cohen rather than Bob Dylan. You you see Dylan as courtly in that that song? Only in a few of his love songs, probably mm. more in Lay Lady Lay, but. Yeah. Uh, I always reckoned that Bob Dylan's brass bed wouldn't be anywhere as near as interesting as Leonard Cohen's <laughs> in Chelsea Hotel Number no. Two. <laughs> so you didn't? Uh, did you ever? Um, we, we, I think we did. Had I ever? This is going to be one of those well, questions. Isn't no, it? no, I'm not trying to muckrake or anything. But uh, we had Catherine Williams, uh, the singer, on uh, recently, and she said she used to moon about Bob and and you know uh, and Cat Stevens and that that sort of person. Did you ever moon about Bob or indeed Leonard before you met him? Well, I had a a kind of mooning period with Bob, and it was when he was playing at the Isle of Wight, and I was too young to go, and I would have had no money to find my way there, probably. It's all, all very good hitching a ride, but hitching a boat's a bit more difficult. But there was a picture, I think, in the Evening Standard of him in a sort of three-quarter face. That's what you have as author pictures where you have to see an ear and a nose and two eyes. Mm. Very complicated. And he had this big halo of afro, Know, around his head <laughs> and his beautiful eyes and I thought mm, yeah quite fancy Bob Dylan and of course he looked a lot better than Leonard Cohen did back then Leonard Cohen looked like your granddad but the way that Leonard Cohen sang rather cancelled out all of those problems yeah when, when did you first come across both of them because you've written the definitive book on, on Leonard Cohen I'm your man um, but we're also interested in, in when you might have encountered Bob Well, I was a kid in London, and it was my older brother who uh, bought the first Dylan album that I ever heard. I was still running around trying to chase the Beatles and hang outside Abbey Road in the hope of having a glimpse of John Lennon. So I really hadn't got up to that stage yet. He was a few years older than me, still is. And then uh, Leonard Cohen I found on my own on a compilation album that came out in 1968 called The Rock Machine Turns You On. What track was that? It was... They had on... uh, Dylan's was the Nashville Sky one, I'll Be Your Baby Tonight. And the Leonard Cohen track was Sisters of Mercy. And they had uh, Simon and Garfunkel doing America. So basically I was introduced to the delights of Columbia Records America (laughs) and and ended up being a rock writer. The rock machine turns you on. Yikes. Talk about executives making up album titles. Men in suits shouldn't be allowed to do those things. And and so did did you gravitate towards Dylan before Cohen or at the same time or what was the... Around about the same time. 
I know that I'd heard Love Minus Zero and I'd learned that just before I heard Leonard Cohen and at that point I was playing Sisters of Mercy on my guitar and was entirely unfaithful to Bob except obviously keeping up with his whole career because you can't be interested in music and not want to know everything that he does. Mm. I'm going to be going to the uh, art exhibition later this week too. So are we, so are we, yeah. And you didn't, so you didn't get to the Isle of Wight. When, When did you get to see him live? You know, it was probably when I was, probably a long time later, in um, 1978 or 9, when I was a music journalist. So then we're into street legal, slow mm-hmm. train coming, that, that kind of era. Yeah. That um, wasn't the first time you saw him, um, slow train coming. No, probably before that. Yeah. I don't remember, to be honest. Here I am on a on a, a podcast, a podcast, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a podcast, and I can't remember the first time that I saw him. Well, there was obviously that box set came out a year ago of, um, you know, the bootleg series and the the, the devotion to that sort of gospel era. Mm-hmm. And on the film that they released, there's you know fans coming out and they're saying that they're very angry in a way that. Dylan fans hadn't really been since about 1966 when they were also very angry, but this time they were angry about being preached at. You know, and to this day, I'm trying to work out what it is that wound people up so much about Dylan's embracing of Christianity. Because there's, you know, there's, there's, there's God and Jesus in lots of music from Johnny Cash to the Staple Singers to Hank Williams and Mahalia Jackson. But for some reason, Bob Dylan doing it really pissed people off. Did you feel that? I went to one of those shows. So clearly you are now managing to to keep the diary for me that I never kept at the time. And uh, I I, um, reviewed a show for Sounds that he did at the Santa Monica Civic on that tour. And um, I didn't give it a good review. Mm. I didn't enjoy it at all. It was just a very, very strange show. I remember him being up there in his little black leather jacket and he had gospel singers behind him. And I think it started, if I remember right, with a kind of sermon that I think one of his gospel singers, whose dad was a preacher, gave. And so it puts you into a very strange place to be in a rock venue and there's Bob looking like he's about to deliver a rock show, which many of us loved. And suddenly there were these songs that we didn't know. And a lot of people in the audience, after a certain point of kind of uh, politely clapping, were calling out for songs that they knew. That happens at every show, I'm sure. But uh, he was just absolutely refusing to do anything. And so people started leaving. And I remember outside the show as well, there were sort of Christian people handing out leaflets. And I've still got somewhere in my my kind of dusty, <laughs> you know, mouth shut upon archives, a little thing that I was given there, which was uh, was from some religious group in America that said there is no fire escape from hell because there was something to do with, I oh, guess, God. things. So, I, was, um, I was in I, Alabama about 10 years ago. I remember driving past a church that said, do not play games with God, you will lose. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I, I read the article that you that you wrote um, at the time where you, you mentioned that one of the signs that was being held up was Jesus loves your old songs. Yeah. <laughs> because he wouldn't play his old songs, would he? I mean, that's, not that's why you'd leave. Not just because mm-hmm. they're all new, because some of them were, were quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Serve Somebody is actually a terrific mm-hmm. song. But uh, the fact that he, he was telling everybody they were going to go to hell. Yeah. Uh, who wants that? You either got faith or you got unbelief. Right? That's what and your mum is way. for. It's not yeah. Bob Dylan's job. <laughs> exactly. You know? exactly. Do you think he meant it? I mean, looking back from the vantage of, of today, do you think he was sincere or not? Well, Bob has been known to wind people up for sure, but yeah. I don't think so. I think he was sincere. He 
did go and meet with a, a kind of religious teacher, a Christian, part of some group that was, I think, out in the valley or somewhere in mm. in, uh, in L.A. at that time. The and he was, right? yeah. Yes, he was a very, very assiduous student of it. So something was going on. And it went on for years, and it, it did pretty much properly destroy his career, even though he still had his record, recording contract. So many people... I know that personally I didn't listen to any Dylan for... As long as he was born again, and then I would ask people if you heard the latest one, they said, no, he doesn't seem to be born again anymore, but it's also crap. Mm-hmm. It, and for years, I, I... But it's funny, isn't it? We, we look back at this, this period, and it was only 79 to 81. I mean, contextually, that's less time than he spent recording American standards. It's But then he less... went into the 80s, and, yeah. you know, yes, there were some good songs, but... Yeah. He but, seemed but, to... but I think that the... I guess what I'm saying is the level of betrayal must have been so enormous that it's made it seem like a lot more than two years or three years. I don't think mm-hmm. it felt to me a betrayal so much as just really a boring show. Oh, okay. I seem to remember like searching everywhere in the venue for a bar at one point, <laughs> just like this might ease the pain and there wasn't a bar in there. And that was when I was noticing people kind of walking out and, and complaining. A lot of people stayed as well. You know, yeah. it wasn't as if there was an entire removal of the audience. But it didn't appeal to me that much, I have to say. And I think somebody was telling me who'd done some research into that era that uh, that I think that Bob Dylan's girlfriend was a, a born-again Christian, was a, the daughter of a preacher. And, right. and she was kind of trying to get him into it to, I don't know, keep him on the straight and narrow, perhaps. But it was a strange thing. But I think the album won a Grammy as well. It wasn't as if it was completely ignored by everybody. Slow train did well, yeah. Did very well yeah. with well, that. Well, it's produced by Jerry Wexler. I mean, it sounds fantastic. Whatever it you does think sound it fantastic. Does. You know, a friend of mine mentioned it to me mm-hmm. a few years ago and said, you really must, because I said, I don't know it. And I got it. And I, I actually think a lot of it is actually terrific now. But I was mm-hmm. sort of blinded. There's something about, and, and bringing Leonard possibly back into this, there is something about, you know, I was raised in a Jewish family. And Jews for Jesus is a doubly weird thing. And I heard that Leonard's response was quite mm-hmm. sort of, that he was particularly shocked when he actually heard that Bob had taken Jesus into his heart. Well, it's funny. I mean, Leonard loved Jesus. He said he never stood up in a synagogue and shouted it, but he loved Jesus, and sure. Jesus appears yeah. in pretty much all of his greatest hits. Many of his early poems, he adored Jesus. But at the same time, he was a Jew, and he was horrified when he heard it. He heard about it, actually, from Jennifer Warnes. I think she'd popped over to visit him. Jennifer was one of his backing singers back at that time, and I guess she was popping in for a visit, and uh, she said, did you hear, you know, about... Bob's kind of <laughs> a born again Christian, and I probably I'd have to ex, you know expletive deleted. He was not very happy about it at all. He was yelling and screaming like what the? Yeah, because it's one thing being a you know Buddhist Scientologist mm-hmm. explorer in the way Leonard was. I don't think he he ever identified. Correct me if I'm wrong. As a exclusively a Christian, mm-hmm. you know he was always. Uh, a, a card-carrying Jew as, as well. Oh, absolutely. When he was ordained a Buddhist monk after living in a Zen monastery for five and a half years, he uh, he wrote a poem saying, I am a Jew. I am a Jew. I am a Jew over and over again. So it's interesting because both, you know, Leonard and uh, and Bob kind of would play with sort of like biblical sort of Old Testament symbolism in, in many of their songs. And you think that Leonard did... Um, Highway 61, God said to Abraham, give me a son. Abraham <laughs> yeah. said, man, you must be putting me on. And, and Leonard Cohen was uh, doing, you know, what was it? Uh, uh, door open slowly. My father 
he came in, I was nine years old, the story of Isaac. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's these similar stories on each side. So for, for Bob to a completely abandoned ship like that was, was a somewhat of a horror to Leonard. Yeah, because Leonard seemed to be playing with it. Didn't he say once, uh, religion is my favorite hobby? Leonard said a lot of things that sounded good, but not weren't necessarily what he thought. Yeah. He was a master of, of masks and smoke and mirrors. I love the bit in Suzanne when he's talking about Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water, and, and just that notion that he said something when he knew that only drowning men could see him. That's, that's one of my favourite mm-hmm. religious... Yeah, but he's also lyrics. said he himself was broken. So Jesus himself was yeah. broken mm. before being broken on the cross, yeah. which is more of a kind of Kabbalah kind of reference of the mm. gods being, you know, broken. So, yeah, there's a lot of that going on mm. <laughs> to, jet, like, to give you too many examples. No, that's fine. I mean, I guess the, 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 two, the two kind of crossovers for Cohen and Dylan are, <clears throat> one, that, that Christianity episode, and the other famous story of them swapping lyrics in a cafe in Paris, was it? Yes. In fact, I can tell you the story of how they met. There's In earlier biographies of Cohen, there was a sort of, People were assuming that they met met in Greenwich Village. You know, Leonard was living in New York. Dylan was there. But most of the people I'd asked, you know, who knew Dylan at the time, said that they didn't think that they'd met there. But um, I was told by his, uh, Bob Dylan's and Leonard Cohen's producer, Bob Johnston, from Columbia Records. He told me that they met for the first time backstage at Leonard Cohen's show in New York. It was a kind of festival, a sort of folk festival, but not one of those where they're always playing the same day. It's several bands on different days. And uh, apparently Bob Dylan turned up at the back door, the backstage door, and the security guard wouldn't let him in. This is probably the only security guard at a folk festival who did not recognise Bob Dylan. And Bob was not amused by this. And as Bob Johnston told me this, he was cackling with laughter. (laughs) Absolutely, riotously happy. So... He goes over to see the guy, and the security guy says, this says this guy says he's Bob Dylan, and Bob Johnston said, I said, never seen him before in my life, <laughs> and walked back, and apparently Bob was having a little fit and having a terrible twos tantrum about this, so he said, oh, let him in. And he brought him in to see Leonard, and Leonard's band were in there too, and so they, they could attest to, to this story um, independently. He said, Dylan came in, and the two of them circled each other like cats almost. Nobody said anything. Mm. Nobody broke the silence. But actually, finally, it was Bob Dylan who broke the silence. And he said, like, mm. how are you doing here, man? You notice I didn't use my perfect, flawless Bob Dylan impersonation. <laughs> Feel I, free, because that's to, one of the reasons we're here. Yes, we all, we all yeah. lapse. No, no, time. I've already made a fool of myself enough so far. So <laughs> he came in and said, like, how are you doing here, man? And apparently there was an even longer silence and Leonard asked, answered, you've got to be somewhere. It was almost like speaking Dylan to him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they kind of parted, supposedly vaguely friends or at least having got that awkward introduction over. But probably, yes, the most famous kind of Dylan-Cohen meeting was in Paris where I think uh, Dylan was there to play and Leonard was there because his French girlfriend lived there. And they met up in a cafe, and it was a time that Leonard had just had his album Various Positions turned down by the record company because it didn't have any hits on it. Yeah. And that had the song Hallelujah and yeah. If It Be Your Will. Someone got the last laugh there, didn't they? <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, Dylan was talking to him and said, Hey, man, a lot of your songs are sound, beginning to sound like prayers, you know. I guess he still had his you know, Christian thing going. Mm. 
And uh, so they had a little chat and uh, Leonard told me, he said, uh, you know, that Dylan had said to him, that Alleluia song, like, how long did it take you to write? And, you know, it had been about 15 years or something. And so he was a bit embarrassed. So he said two years, thinking that that was bad enough. And, and he asked Dylan how, uh, how long it took him to write a particular new song. And he said 15 minutes in the back of a cab. And this and, was um, I and I, wasn't it? I yes, think? it was I right. and I. And he said, oh, 15 minutes in the back of a cab. So there you have the two great writers of our time in music who uh, have very different methods. And that's from the horse's mouth then. Did mm-hmm. Leonard tell you? Yes, yes. Leonard so told that's me that. I have to go back to Bob Johnson just for a second, just because he's so legendary. And he is the Bob from Is It Rolling Bob? He is. Can you tell us anything more about him? I mean, just it's he sounded like such a fascinating oh, person. Bob was lionized greatly in Dylan's Chronicles. You know, he said yeah. he was like a guy with a cape and a saber and all of these things, long flowing hair. <laughs> Bob was an absolute maniac who adored music. He was a staff producer in New York at Columbia Records. He had wanted to produce Leonard Cohen's first album, but at the time he was also producing Dylan, Simon and Garfunkel and most of the people on this rock machine turns you on. And so they wouldn't allow him to do it and passed uh, uh, Leonard over to a guy called John Simon. But he uh, stepped in and actually saved Leonard's career in a sense because Leonard was so unhappy with that first album. It was only Bob Johnston sort of snatching him away, finding him a log cabin in Nashville and letting him have fun there mm. that made him agree to a second album. So so Bob was kind of pretty much a sort of unsung legend in that world of uh, producing. He also wrote songs. He'd written a song that was a couple of B-sides for Elvis Presley albums, and his wife, Joy, was also a songwriter. He was eventually sort of shipped over to Nashville, Columbia, I guess, to get him out of the way. And at that point, he started working with Johnny Cash on the prison albums. None of the other Nashville people at Columbia would let him record albums in prison because that was not considered a good thing to Mm -hmm. do, you know. And so he was enabled very much by Bob. So Bob has got this absolutely fantastic history and is a complete maniac absolutely hates the suits. I don't know how he kept that job at all <laughs> and loves musicians. And so his whole thing with Dylan, um, when he, st- he th- I think he, was it Tom Dowdy stepped in for afterwards when things weren't working with Bob and him? He sort of stepped in and said, like, with my, my place, you do what you want. We just keep the things rolling. We keep it going. Mm. He just kind of provided a safe space for them and wouldn't let anybody from record companies come in. So that was his, uh, his system, just keep it rolling. And, and he produced and he Dylan people. for a while, didn't he? I mean, I, I'm a bit shaky on the dates, but he from <clears> Blonde <throat> on Blood until, what, New Morning, I think, is all Bob Johnston, is Bob that John, right? Uh, sorry, Blood on, uh, Blood on the Tracks is too, and uh, Blonde on Blonde. Right. And I think it was Blood on the Tracks. It was a whole bunch, certainly. I think I Al Cooper 61. claimed that he produced New Morning or something. I think that's slightly <laughs> disputed. Possibly. Well, well, I, I just... guess, you know, well, like I said, with Bob Johnston, his style of production wasn't the style of, like, John Hammond, you know, sort of mm. sitting behind the glass and watching what was going on, or these engineers in white suits. It was more, we're making a space where something creative can come from it. But he toured with Leonard as well, didn't he? Yes, he kind of fell out with Bob Dylan over that, according to him. Oh, really? Yes, he said that uh, Bob was really upset because he wasn't available. He'd gone on the road with... Um, with Leonard, Leonard said he wouldn't tour at all. This was after having a second album out that was number two in England and not even at all on the charts in America. And Leonard didn't want to tour. And he said, I'll only tour if you'll be my manager. He said to 
to Bob, and you'll be my, you know, you'll play in my band. And Bob said, well, I'd play a bit of keyboards, I guess, but I'm not a manager, you know, I don't want any money for this. And he went on the road, and at that time he left. I think he'd been fired, perhaps, by Columbia Nashville, or he'd quit at that point, Columbia Nashville, to go on his own. And so he just had a wonderful time, uh, you know, taking daily acid and running riot in Europe with Leonard. Yeah, no, I was reading in your book about the the powerful acid that they were all imbibing, which was so strong they couldn't, they didn't even use a pin to dip into it. They they used a needle the tip. The edge of a needle, yes. And, and and touched their tongue with it, and then they were gone for like 14 hours. These were connoisseurs. <laughs> <laughs> I was always, I was so, you know, straight at the time, even though, when I say I was straight, I was doing a bunch of acid and drugs and things. But I thought in order to do that, you had to grow your hair long and look like a, uh, you know, a person who did drugs. I didn't realize that people like Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen were all out of their heads for a number of years and just looked kind of like the more acid they did, the straighter they looked. Hmm, it's very That's interesting. I were. think that with Leonard Cohen, the most remarkable thing to me was that he, for several decades, he took speed. Hmm. And I was very shocked. I said, you on speed, you know? Wow. And he said, darling, you should see me when I'm not. <laughs> well, the thing that always fascinated me about Leonard Cohen's writing process, I've never forgotten the anecdote, um, and maybe speed is the natural extension of this, but the anecdote that when he was staying in London um, and he went to stay with a, with a landlady and she said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a writer. And she said, well, if you're a writer, I want to see, you'll correct me, X amount of sides of A4 a day. Because that's what a writer does. A writer doesn't sit around and wait for inspiration. A writer is a draftsman and, you know, knocks, knocks this stuff out with a kind of discipline. And maybe the, maybe the speed took that over after the, the initial impetus ran out. I don't know. I think he just likes speed. <laughs> <laughs> and acid and all sorts of things you wouldn't expect. So it's wonderful, I'm sure, that Bob, you know, maybe that's what made his hair quite so curly and why I adored that picture of him <laughs> in the Evening Standard from all those years ago. Have you heard the, um, the 1966 uh, box set, the, 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 one of some of those later concerts, particularly the last one of the tour at the Albert Hall, when he is absolutely off his face? I, I don't know if, if you heard it, but he's... It makes the acoustic set somehow very fragile and, and beautiful, whereas the electric set is just a bit of a mess. Mm -hmm. But God knows what he was taking. Um, I'm just always amazed. I think it's it's Dr. Theatre, as we call it, yeah, in the theatre, yeah. that keeps you going. Because when Dylan is sort of rambling in between songs, you think, this guy is just, it's amazing that he's standing up. Yeah. Then when he starts singing, boom. It's astonishing that, that he does that... that you know, that ramble before Visions of Johanna where he says, this is not a drug song. And he sounds near death, actually, and, and, and seriously. And then he does this beautifully fragile version of Visions of Johanna as if it's the last time he'll ever sing it. Yeah, that's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. I just, anyway. But, you know. I'm, I'm interested in uh, the Bob Leonard. I'm not sure it's a dichotomy, but they both wrote very uh, great love songs and sexual, super sexual songs and I'm, I'm can you com compare them in any way or contrast them the what would you say were the super sexual songs of dylan of I, dylan yeah. uh lady lady lay is well i don't find pretty. that very sexy it's kind of like more like a bit of an insipid pickup line whereas <laughs> as i say Leonard is you know it's got people giving him head on an unmade bed by whip while limousines wait in the street <laughs> i mean leonard like there's 
you know, there's so many songs about fellatio. I don't like the breeze and you know, all this. Like, yeah. You name it. So most of it, you know, they've got God in one half of the sentence and then he's, he's off eating someone out, you know. I mean, no, no. It's, sorry, the, the long word eluded me for the second. Cunnilingus. With my it's a, it's a podcast. Like, we can say whatever lag, we like. You know. Yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, okay. I, I get what you're so saying. I think on that, that with, yeah. you know, he was much better when he was being coruscating against women. He could insult women like nobody mm. else, Bob Dylan. Whereas Leonard's insults aren't very good, except on Death of a Ladies' Man. He kind of managed to get, get it up a little for that. I would mm. say they've got very different styles on it. That there's a seem, seemingly a shyness to me to, to some of um, Dylan's love songs. That's what I feel in Love Minus Zero. There's this mm. shy approach and uh, also in, say, Into Ramona or a song like that. It was a very girlfriendly. I remember uh, doing an interview with Lucinda Williams and for some reason or other, it's probably something to do with Mojo, the magazine I write for, that they occasionally have a, a kind of roundup of, of you know asking lots of people the same question. So I remember I had to ask her, like, what was your favourite Bob Dylan song? And she said, To Ramona. Hmm. Yeah, and and I read the thing that you said about what Marianne Faithful said about uh, him writing her a poem. Do you oh, tell that yes, story? Oh yes, my uh, the Marianne Dillon story. I was I was saying earlier before the the mics came on that there's only very few areas in which a, a Dillonologist would want to kiss the hem of my scuzzy old black jeans, but one of them was sort of uh, talking to Marianne Faithful. She said it was in the sixties. She was in a hotel room with Dylan and sitting there, and he was a typewriter at the table, tapping away. And uh, she said, what are you writing? And he said, I'm writing a love song, dot, 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 to you. And so clearly it was part of the the Bob Dylan pickup technique. You know, Leonard had many of his own, and this wasn't so bad. I imagine he probably got that one from Leonard. Yeah. And... Uh, so in the end, she decided to turn him down because she just got married and she thought she should be at least faithful for the time of, you know, you know the honeymoon period. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was the 60s. People yeah, right. didn't even think that. I thought it was very sweet of her to feel that way. And uh, so at that point, he actually tore the thing into pieces. So she never got to see it. I asked her how it was and she said, no, he tore it into pieces and threw it in the bin. See, it fascinates me that aside from the, the kind of sexuality of that, that it's just yet another example of Dylan being in complete control of what the public sees of him or even what someone personally sees of him. I mean, I don't know if you've seen, uh, they did an omnibus on BBC in about 86 called Getting to Dylan, which is on YouTube. And while he's being interviewed, he decides to draw the interviewer, which is very, very disconcerting for the interviewer, but he does it anyway. And the interviewer says, can I see the drawing that you're doing? And he, and he says, maybe. He says, I'll, I'll look at it. And see if it's any good. If not, forget it. See if it's any good. Yeah. yeah. You I, go, I, I like you, Sylvia. I resisted the notion to, to do that. But I'm <laughs> adding some class to the procedure, clearly. But yeah, and it's exactly the same as, as with Marianne Faithful. You know, if this doesn't have the effect or if this is, doesn't go where I want it to go, I'm ripping it up and you'll never see it. And I'm, I'm pretty sure he probably treats many albums like that, his fans like that. You know, I'll show you this song if, you want, if I want you to see it. But if not, then forget it. So are we saying that this is the revelation... Bob Dylan in control freak shock <laughs> no, hold the headlines. So. <laughs> Interesting theory shock, I think. Yeah, I don't think you have any revelations left. 
Did you ever see Leonard? Um, you referred to his various pickup lines. You spent a lot of time with him. Mm-hmm. Did you see ever see him try out his pickup lines oh, in person? That would be a bit mean. He's yeah. not here to either laugh just... or castigate me for it. So but... it would probably be mean. But basically, the thing about Leonard, I think, was that he just loved women. I mean, obviously, he's well known as a ladies' man, but he loved women horizontally as well as vertically, you know, and, and every angle in between. He had women who you know, sang with him. He had women managers. His first manager was a woman, the one that forced him back on the road yes. by rather yeah. devoiding him, him, him of any cash in his oh, accounts. Yeah. Also a woman. He has a woman engineer who on his albums. So he really loved women in, in all regards. If you were in a room with Leonard Cohen and a woman walked in, there was something would light up in his eyes. Immediately, it's, it's a woman. And so I guess for the longest part of his life, you know, he would be as charming as possible and was very good at kind of individualizing his charm. You didn't feel that you were in the, the room with a lech, you know, where you can usually see the sort of drool coming out of their mouth or it's hidden slightly. He had this way of just wanting to know about the person and focusing entirely on them. And I think that pretty much anybody who did an interview with him, especially women, would come out with a little blush in their cheeks and smoking an imaginary cigarette because there was something about him that was so very seductive. Mm. But he also used that as one of his masks, which was a way of making sure that he's told you certainly a lot of stuff to, to that you can print, lots of very good quotes. But if you actually sit there and look at them, there's not a lot of substance in there. Have you ever... Uh interviewed Bob or come close interviewing Bob? I came close to interviewing Bob and then it was cancelled at the last minute. Had you prepared for it? I mean, how would you prepare for Bob, say, the, rather than uh, Leonard the first time you How I prepared him? for that particular interview with Bob because before, you know, the sort of Scorsese film and suddenly we heard him speak and jaws of just about anybody who loved Bob just collectively thudded to the floor across the world. And, uh, you know, in, in conjunction with uh, Chronicles, it was just a marvel. Before mm. that, um, he would always set up rules for interviews that made it almost impossible to get something for him. And this uh, interview was going to be for the cover of a magazine, a monthly magazine. And they were going to give us access, us meaning me in this instance, of going to a round table. These are the most hideous things on earth, where they have one person from each country's important magazine. And you get to ask some questions. It's like a mini press conference. Like one of those terrible Dylan press conferences. You've got it, where nothing really is said because they're going to play around with it. And you can't get a follow-up question, which is often the important thing. You know, sort of you lead in with a little thing and then that leads to all sorts of side things that that come from it and move things in a different direction. And then I think he said we would have 15 minutes with him. That was negotiated up from 10 with with almost like Middle (laughs) East peace conference precision. And, uh, t- you know, 15 minutes with him for a cover story. And it just wouldn't have been any good because the, everybody who does these round tables, they sell the stuff to other newspapers under a pseudonym. So the daily papers would have the whole story or, or a big chunk of the quotes. And then you've got Bob Dylan with 15 minutes. It's, you know, he'll talk about the new project, but there won't be any depth. Mm. And it seemed pointless to talk to him if I couldn't find out what I wanted to know. Yeah. And now he releases interviews sort of usually when there's something new coming out and they're always with the same guy. Is it Bill Flanagan or something? Yeah, they're they're very seen, yeah. open conversations. Mm-hmm. They go for a long time. But again, they're very 
you know, tightly controlled by him. I know, as I say, Dylan control freak shock. I mean, he's I always been entirely that way yeah. and sort of slightly contemptuous of the rest of the process. And I think that, you know, Leonard Cohen, to go back to the comparisons, certainly had, I wouldn't say a contempt, but a dislike of the process. Mm. But he was kind of gracious and good-natured enough, I think, to go along with it. So he took the other approach of you've got to be kind to journalists, even if you hate them with every fiber <laughs> of your being. Yeah. And in, in my case, you know, this person saying, okay, now it's time we do the book. Mm. It was, uh, you know, done with a kind of certain <laughs> grim sweetness, shall yeah. we say. I'm glad you mentioned the grace because I, I took my daughter to see Leonard Cohen at the O2 in 2000, 2013 um, and I remember him coming out you know, and saying, and talking to this cavernous place and saying, thank you, friends. And I thought, he's calling us friends. You wouldn't get that with Bob Dylan. You know, he wouldn't talk to you at all, Pretty but he certainly, opposite, yeah. he certainly wouldn't say, thank you, friends, for coming, you know. And, you know, Leonard would also sort of sign autographs, but that's the 15 minutes in which Bob Dylan could write another song. Yeah, right. Mm. right. <laughs> another I and I, yeah. Did you ever, did, or I know that you did a, a very long and wonderful interview with, with Johnny Cash towards the end of his life. Did he ever talk about Dylan to you? Or yes, we talk, I talked to him about Dylan. Really? Or oh, another hem, the other hem. Now yes, I think I've gone into the, the third hem. This is obviously a very different thing. Yeah, I'd spent um, a week with Johnny Cash. It was about six weeks before he died and yeah. six weeks after June Carter had died. And he had gone back to work on doing a, a kind of whole bunch of work. It was the only way he could deal with with the pain of losing her. And his producer at that time was Rick Rubin, who was a, an old friend of mine, back when Rick Rubin was a producer of death metal bands and thrash metal bands. And, you know, but these days he had been the sort of saviour in a way of Johnny Cash, bring him, bringing him out of the kind of, you know, the, the blue hair market sort of dinner club set mm. where he had small audiences to getting him Grammys for every one of his um, albums that he put out in that time. And so it was Rick that asked me to go and speak to Johnny at his house and, and write a book. We were going to do a small hardback book for a box set called Unearthed and then a big book afterwards. But, uh, you know, Bob died. Sorry, Johnny died just before mm. uh, that album came out, so we just stuck with that small book. We were both pretty devastated. Mm. But, yes, I spoke to him. I was at this house and there was a, a little kind of... It was a very curious house built on different levels because of the the way that the land was. So it wasn't a sort of one of those with several stories, but it had sort of basements, sort of a part that led to this huge lake. And I'd read up on, you know, how Dylan, when he did, you know, would hang out with, with Bob Johnston and, and with Johnny Cash, would go on, on in the little boat and out to the lake. And so... I'd asked him, say, can I see the boat, you know, where you took Dylan out from the lake? And he said, oh, oh, honey, it's gone now. You know, I don't have that anymore. But So we went out to the little jetty and, and we looked out at the lake. And he would tell me, he said, yeah, I was a good guy. He was a good boy. He was a good boy. And we had some fun. Yeah. And Bob had given me all sorts of wonderful tapes of their kind of sessions together, most of which have independently worked their way onto the internet. Mm. So I don't think I have anything that's completely exclusive. But back before... Such things were available. Bob had given me all of those sessions of them singing "Careless Love" and things yeah, together. Yeah, that, well, that, that clip of them doing one too many mornings with Bob Johnston talking about it on—is it Johnny Cash, the man and his music? The name of the documentary. It was not. In fact, that recording of one too many mornings has still not been released. But it's—I love it, and it's—it's yeah. it's Cash and Dylan and and Bob Johnston producing them in the studio, and it's just such a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Um, 
One other thing I could remember about Bob Johnston telling me is that um, I asked him about how did you get Cash and Dylan together at a time when really, you know, there were some artists obviously sort of doing a sort of slightly country rock influence thing, but how did you get them together? And he said, just like pushed them in a room together, locked the door. And he said that the whole time he had to keep it quiet from uh, Columbia Records that this was going on. Mm. And he put different names on, on what was going on so that they actually didn't know that, you know, they were doing a duet on. It's wonderful. It and, was wonderful. And still my favourite version of Don't Think Twice is Alright is Johnny Cash's. I love it. I, I remember them singing Girl from the North Country mm. and the idea that they, you know, there's one point where they get, Johnny Cash gets the words right. I think Dylan gets the word wrong. And the, the fact that they released that and put it out on an album just blew my mind completely. I just mm. never heard a mistake First track as well. I mean, that's yeah. the first you know. track, and it's, it's it's. I love the production of that as well. The guitar. Yeah. It sounds to me like it's underwater or something. It's just. It's so, got so much depth. It's so beautiful. I just and the the blending of the voices. Yeah, I just. I agree entirely with that. And and uh, Johnny, you just said that you know they used to sort of keep away the long haired element from him. He said, but I liked him. <laughs> I liked him. I like that. I like that Bob. <laughs> I think we've got to wrap it up, unfortunately. So I'll just say officially thank you, Sylvie Simmons, for thank coming you, this way. Thanks for having me. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Cheney County Suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Tushar Manek. Produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music by Sam Hare. She said, Where you been? I said, no place special. She said, you look different. I said, well, I guess. She said, you've been gone. I said, it's only natural. She said, you're going to stay? I said, if you want me to, yes. <laughs>